How many of you are, are married here this morning? Anyone? Okay. Do you know that you are? <laughs> or maybe how many of you desire to get married someday? Okay. You don't have to. I know we always seem to set up marriage as like the pinnacle of existence. It's just a picture of, of God's relationship with us, but it's a great one. If you are married or you desire to be married someday, and you'd like to stay that way, I'd like you to envision a scenario with me for a minute of celebrating a wedding anniversary. Now, I know we all have different standards about what that should look like, and that's fine. But imagine on this particular anniversary morning, the wife comes down from the bedroom and into the a living room there, and there's a husband. He's sitting there doing whatever. He's watching sports highlights on the computer, whatever. It's nothing wrong with that. And so she, as she walks by, she sees him and says, Happy anniversary, love. <laughs> but he, he doesn't even look up from the computer. He's just like, Oh, yeah, yeah. You too, babe. Continues to watch. Okay, so that's already a fail, but you know what? She's just like, I gotta, I gotta shake it off. I just, I'm gonna walk into here go get a coffee, whatever. She goes into the kitchen, and there on the table is uh, flowers and a card for her. And yet, the flowers are dead, drooping, uh, uh, some sort of a jacked-up paper around it. Clearly, he's stolen this from somebody's green bin in the alley. And the card that he's left her is last year's anniversary card that he fished out of the trash 11 months ago, sort of tried to wipe off the coffee grounds and, and yogurt, but it's still just dried to the card. This is what he's left for her. Now, I know we talked last week about setting unrealistic expectations. Okay. But is it unrealistic at all for any wife to expect at least more than this from her husband? Or is it unrealistic at all for the husband to not expect to be hit in the head with that bouquet of flowers? No, okay, uh, uh, honestly, uh, um, with this offering of dead, stolen flowers and a yogurt-stained card, should this wife feel loved and honored in any way, in the least? In fact, I think we'd all agree it probably would have gone better for all parties involved if he'd simply just forgotten their anniversary, done nothing, rather than to leave this, this pitiful, feigned attempt at celebrating their marriage. Quick application is, don't do that. We're continuing this morning in this series through the book of Malachi called Malachi, Correcting Vision. And if you weren't with us uh, last Sunday, which is when we began, we started up by looking at Israel's really audacious question of God, how have you loved us? How? And what I stressed was that it's incredibly significant that God started there Significant because I believe God began there because he knew that this was the foundational issue that Israel had, out of which all of their other questions and, and, and difficulties and problems would arise. Namely, they had lost confidence. They lost trust and belief in God's love for them. So God says, hey, let's begin here. Let's start with the fact of my love for you because if you lose your grasp on that, it's going to distort the way you see me. It's going to distort the way you see the way I do things. And as we're going to see today, it's going to also distort the way you respond back to me. 
So in a very real sense, after establishing the fact of his love, God said, okay, I have loved you. Now today, God is going to turn the tables. He's going to say, all right, now that we cleared that up, let's take a look now at how you respond in, in love and honor to me. Because if God truly has loved his people, as we saw last week, then half-hearted, going through the motions, worship, dead flowers and a yogurt stain, card, I think that's demonstrating anything but a loving response in return. Rather, what we see, as we said, because Israel, their unfounded expectations of God were frustrated and they had concluded that God no longer loved them, as a result, what we see here is they'd become sloppy, careless, really even petulant and defiant in their worship of God. And in the end, God says, actually, it would be better for us, it would be better for all involved if you just stopped worshiping me at all, rather than bringing these defiled offerings to me. And I hope you can see already how incredibly important this is for us to look at today. Because if you didn't know, God has also clearly demonstrated his love for us. And how we respond to that love in our worship of him, our, our, our acts of worship in response, that, that will demonstrate the true nature of our love for him. Well beyond uh, words we say, songs we sing, it's really going to show in that way. And if we too, like Israel, are to lose sight of the immensity of God's love for us, the truth and the fact of God's love for us, we too could become careless, God forbid, even Bored in our worship of him? And as such, rather than demonstrating the love and the gratitude, the honor that God deserves, we end up demonstrating instead a contempt for his name. So it's going to be a hard one for us this morning. Uh, no, I don't think anyone's going to walk out of here untouched by this, from, from myself and the leaders of this church down to the kids in Sunday school, all of us. Because here's the thing, God has, the, the love of God demonstrated for us in Jesus demands a response from every single one of us. And the question that we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what does my worship of God demonstrate? What does my worship of God demonstrate? What does it demonstrate to God and to others who, who witness it, who see it? And as we look at Israel's response here this morning and their response to God's love for them, I want to draw out two things that I pray will help us as we consider how we respond to God's love for us in our worship. So we're going to look at what false worship demonstrates to God and what false worship demonstrates to others. What false worship demonstrates to God and to others. So, if you closed your Bibles, open them up again, please, to Malachi chapter 1, starting at verse 6 there, and we'll, we'll dig into this together. We're all in the same boat here. Let's go together. And let's look, first of all, at what false worship demonstrates to God. What does our false worship demonstrate to Him? Now, as we said last week, the whole conversation between God and His people was centered around, was framed around the question of God's love for His people. How he had demonstrated that love most supremely in, in choosing them and saving them as a nation. And then the ways he'd continued to offer blessing and love and show that to them in countless ways. 
And I said God began that way because really he's saying, in effect, there's no point of even talking about anything else if we don't have this fact established. So that's why he began there. But, but now that God's established that fact for his love, of his love for his people, the next section here of this conversation is now centered around, centered entirely around God's statement that he makes in verse 11. Look there with me. God says in verse 11 of chapter 1, My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name because my name will be great among the nations. Flip ahead quickly to verse 14, the second half. There God says, For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. We see in other places like Psalm 8. Uh, David says, Lord, how majestic is your name. In all the earth. You remember uh, when Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray, one of the first things he teaches them Lord, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Maybe we'd want to stop right here, though, and just ask, okay, well, why is God making such a big deal about his name? What, what, what's the big deal? Who cares if people think his name is great as long as they think he's great? Isn't that really the, the main point? Well, no, because. Especially in the Old Testament, what we come to see as we look at it more is that people's names in the Old Testament wasn't just what you called them. It was also an expression of who they were as a person, who they were as an individual. So maybe uh, if you were here uh, late last year through our uh, True Family Portrait series, you remember we looked at Jacob and Esau. We saw how Jacob's name means he deceives. So then when Jacob lives out that name and tricks his father into getting the blessing instead of Esau, Esau's bitter reply is, isn't he rightly named Jacob? Doesn't his name suit him just perfectly? So, when God reveals his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, Yahweh, I am, the the I am that I am, I, I will be what I will be. God isn't just saying to Moses and his people, hey, this is what I most like to be called. He's revealing through the revelation of his name as much as can be humanly grasped about his nature and character, who he is as a a God, his greatness, his power, his his eternality, all these things. So the reason God is making such a big deal about his name is because to dishonor, to show contempt for God's name is to show dishonor and contempt for him. This is exactly the charge that God brings against his people in the very next Verse, in verse 12, look there. After declaring the greatness, the splendor, the holiness of his name throughout the world, God says, but you profane it. You profane my name. What does that mean, to profane God's name? To profane something means uh, to pollute it, to defile it, to treat it as unholy and worthless. I mean, even the way that God begins this whole address in verse 6, look back there saying to his people, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? This means that to show a lack of respect, a lack of honor for God's name, that's not something passive. It actually shows active contempt for God's name, which, as we just said, means we're showing active contempt for him. And so it's here in the context of this rebuke that God's people, specifically his priests, who were the most accountable of all of them, they ask the question now, 
How have we shown contempt for your name? How? We don't use that word a lot. We don't hear that word contempt a lot. I mean, we probably know it's bad, but we don't necessarily use it a lot unless, like me, you enjoy watching a lot of legal dramas. There, we hear it all the time. You know, a, a lawyer is getting a little bit too excited in his questioning of somebody or a defendant is, is disrespecting the court in some way. And what does the judge say? You keep acting like that, I will hold you in contempt. Now, a legal definition of what that term is. Listen, any willful disobedience to or disregard of a court order or any misconduct in the presence of a court, an action that interferes with a judge's ability to administer justice or that insults the dignity of the court and which is punishable by fine or imprisonment or both. So God means by using this word contempt. So this contempt for God's name that he's speaking of here is a willful action by God's people against him. It's an action that robs him of his honor as well as interferes with his ability to administer justice. And we'll see what that means as we look at how these sacrifices don't actually bring about the justice they're intended to bring about. Just like we saw last week, it's unbelievable that Israel would even ask this question because they should already know the answer. They should know the answer. And yet, we also saw, again, Israel, because they've lost their trust, they've lost their grasp of God's love for them, their, their thinking is distorted, their sight is distorted, they're not seeing things clearly. And so, God sends his prophet Malachi to help correct their vision. And here we see, although again, he has no obligation to answer, because he is a gracious, truly loving father, God responds to their question again. Only this time, rather than describing his love for them, God, God his answer to their question is to describe how his people have responded to his love for them. And in answering that way, in doing that, God shows His people that the way that they have shown contempt for His great name is in their false worship of Him. You've shown contempt for my name in your false worship of me. We see this, first of all, in verses 7 and 8 of our passage. Look here. God says, You place defiled food on my altar. You ask, How have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible, verse 8, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Look at the second half of, of verse 13 as well. When you bring injured or crippled animals, diseased animals, offer them as sacrifices, shall I accept them? From your hand, you, you see there's a, a continued theme here. They're bringing these blind, crippled, uh, uh, stolen animals in some cases to God. If you didn't know, the commands of God as to what kind of sacrifices were acceptable to bring to Him were clearly laid out in the law. There wasn't any question as to, you know, is this acceptable, is it not acceptable? It was clearly laid out. I mean, places like Leviticus 22, Deuteronomy 15, God says specifically that Israel is never to bring these kinds of animals in sacrifice to him. He's bottom of the barrel, bringing you just whatever I can find. He says you are never to bring these type of sacrifices. But maybe, just like with God's name, maybe we want to ask the question again, what's the big deal? Why, why is this so important? Why, why is God making such a big deal about, why do they have to be perfect? 
Why do they have to be not un- unblemished sacrifice? Why does God care so much? Isn't it, isn't it enough that they're bringing something? They're offering something to him? Or maybe as extra nice Canadian people, maybe we would say, well, that's not really fair of God. Maybe that's all they have to offer. And here he's, he's, he's being ungracious, he's being intractable, saying, no, no, you only can bring these things. Well, you only need to look at verse 14 of our passage to understand why God is saying this. Listen, he says to them, Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. So God's making such a big deal because it's not as though they didn't have acceptable sacrifices to offer him. They're just simply bringing animals that were useless to them, that were unprofitable to them. They couldn't sell these animals or use them in any way. So they're just bringing it to God and keeping the best that they had for themselves. God's first response here to this contempt is really just to ask them a simple question, just based on their own understanding of everyday life. He's, he's saying to them, how would this play out? How would this contempt play out in a much lower court? Look at verse 8, second half here. God says, try offering these to your governor. Would, would he be pleased with you? Would, would he accept you? And God's saying to these people, are you kidding me? Would you seriously put out the paper plates and picnic cutlery when you had fine china clearly visible in the buffet right beside the table if the mayor was coming over for dinner? No, you wouldn't. Because you would be saying something obviously about your level of respect for him by doing so. You'd be saying this is all you're worth. And God's saying when you have an acceptable offering and you bring me the very worst and yet still seek blessing from me, How is that any different in this much higher court as you bring these offerings to the God of the universe who's loved you, who's saved you, who everything that you have right now is a gracious gift from my hand. If I'm a father, where is my honor? If I am a master, where is the respect that is due me? So we see, first of all, that what false worship communicates to God is you're actually not my father. You're not truly my father. You're not truly my master or my Lord either. I am. I am. Because you see, the very definition of the word worship, which comes from the old English word worth-ship, implies you give the very best of what you have to that which has the most worth to you. And by extension, you give the very least of what you have to that which is of least worth to you. We see this in every arena of life. So just going through the motions, just just getting something onto the altar, that was never what God intended when he set up the sacrificial system. It was always the intention. It was the heart motivation behind the offerings that he desired. There's a well-known story, perhaps well-known to you as well, from 2 Samuel, where there is a a plague of of death sweeping through Israel, and David, King David, he has the opportunity to stop it. If he will set up an altar and sacrifice on this threshing floor where the angel of death has stopped, a a man by the name of Aruna, he uh, goes to this man and, and asks if he can buy this threshing floor so he can set up an altar, offer sacrifices to God, and stop this plague from going any further. 
And you remember, uh, Aruna says to the king, he's like, this is, you're the king. Dude, just take it. Absolutely. Whatever you need, take the threshing floor, take the whole field. Just have it. You remember what David's response is? No. No. He says, I will not offer sacrifices to the Lord that cost me nothing. In another place, First uh, Chronicles 29, uh, the people of Israel have taken up a huge collection in order to fund the building of the temple that later Solomon will build. And when they finish this massive collection, all the, the money and the gold and everything has come in, they've got this huge offering. What does David say in response to this? Does he say, hey God, hey, check out how generous we've been. We want to build a temple for you. No. He says, but who am I and what is my people that we should be able to thus offer willingly? For all things come from you and of your own have we given you. Don't you see? Right, uh, true, acceptable offerings to God have nothing to do actually with how much you spend. Nothing at all. They have everything to do with the heart motivation behind the offering. A desire to give God the very best of what we have because He's the utmost in our affections. And a recognition that everything we have already belongs to Him anyways. We only offer back to Him what He's graciously given to us in the first place. And for you and I today... This, this is why it's such a big deal for us to see, to look at this and see why God was making this big deal about the animals, why he's condemning the priests for offering these animals, because the interior heart motivation behind the offering was not worship at all. It was the very opposite. They were showing contempt rather than honoring his name, which is why finally in verse 10, look at this, one of the most terrible verses in the Bible. God's just had enough of this false worship. And he says, oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will not accept offerings from your hands. Wow. When we consider this today in our own lives, it's something we need to think very carefully about when it comes to what we offer to God in our worship. To ask ourselves the question, what is it that my offerings to God are actually communicating to Him? When I offer things to God, what am I communicating to Him? And listen, everybody just relax, okay? I'm not, not just talking about our money. And secondly, we've already taken up the offering, okay? I'm not, not priming the pump for some big offering here. I'm asking us to really consider, to take a minute right now before God and in the quietness of your heart to really think in this moment, because it's gonna, the moment will pass and we'll, we'll head out after church and we won't do it. Think right now in your own heart. Does what I offer to God in my worship of Him, does it demonstrate honor and worship or contempt for His name? Do I offer to God the very best of what I have uh, in my service to Him? in my singing to Him, in my giving to Him, in my prayer, my fasting, my reading of His Word? Is His name truly honored because I've offered Him my best? Or is it profaned? 
As we just saw, you can't, you can't actually gauge that by how much you're giving, by, by how much time you're giving, or, or by how much it looks like to everybody else you're worshiping. It can only be gauged by the unseen intent and motivation of our heart that only God sees and that you know. Let's take a moment right now and just think in your own heart. What does my worship communicate to God? That's what false worship communicates to God. Hold that in your mind. We'll come back to this. Lastly, I want to look at what false worship communicates to others. What it communicates to others. We're going to spend less time on this point, but that doesn't mean it's not equally as important to God. Because this is actually the other big reason that God pleads with the people in verse 10 that somebody, anybody, would just shut the temple doors and stop lighting useless fires. Just consider that for a moment. What, what does that feel like? What does that look like for God to, to come in here this morning and to say here, you, Dunbar Heights, I'm so displeased with you. Your worship of me is such a sham that it would actually be better for both of us if you would just bolt the doors of the church and leave the lights off from now on. What, what does that feel like? It's important to say again, we're at retreat next week. So if you come here, the doors are shut. That doesn't mean we follow through with that. I suddenly realized that when she said that. That's not going to play out very well. Anyway, the reason God says this to Israel here through Malachi is because along with communicating contempt for God's name through their false worship, this going through the motions kind of worship that Israel was participating in and the, the priests were leading Israel in, or at least sanctioning, because they keep offering these animals, they're also teaching others to worship God in this false way themselves. They're teaching with these actions, as people see it. Look at verse 9. The people are bringing these lame, blind, stolen offerings that places into God, and then they're saying to the priests, now implore God to be gracious to us. We're bringing these totally unacceptable sacrifices. Now tell God to bless us. They've been totally fooled into this wrong way of thinking because the priests are accepting the sacrifices and offering them. I mean, literally, this is as, as unbelievable as that husband who, who left the flowers in that card expecting still some kind of marital reward or blessing for his offering to his wife. Serious? Even as they're offering these sacrifices, and people see them offering. Look at verse 12. They're, they're literally rolling their eyes at God winking to each other, talking about how lame and what a burden this whole bringing offerings is. Oh. Given all this, it shouldn't come as any surprise at all for us to see second half of verse 9. God say, with such offerings from your hands will I accept you. 
or the second half of verse 10, to say, I am not pleased. I will accept no offerings from your hands. Don't bother. And whether it was the priests leading the people into greater and greater false worship of him, or it was the people simply overwhelming the priests and demanding them that they, that they allow them to worship God falsely. I mean, we saw that. Remember in Exodus, uh, the people of Israel just basically jump on air and they're like, no, no, make us a, a God in the shape of a calf. And he does it. And yet whoever it is, whether it's uh, the priests leading them or the people overwhelming the priests, we see that the ones who God holds primarily accountable are the priests. We see this specifically in verse 6, where he says, It is you, O priests, that show contempt for my name. And then, basically, all that we read in chapter 2 there, verses 1 through 9, yes, God is displeased with everybody, but he is most displeased with his priests. And we see the reason for this in chapter 2 and verse 7. Look here with me. God says, For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. And from his mouth men should seek instruction because he is the messenger of the Lord Almighty. God's saying, yeah, yeah, okay, yes, you're all face planning in your worship of me, yes, okay. But, but as my messengers, as the messenger of the Lord, it's your job. It's your responsibility to at least try to correct this false worship of me. People should be able to seek my instruction from you. And yet, look at verse 8. God says, but you have turned away, you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. So instead of just refusing these defiled sacrifices from the, the people, preserving God's knowledge, preserving His law and honor of His name, priests are actually teaching people to continue in this false worship of Him by accepting these animals to sacrifice them and then pronouncing God's blessing pronouncing his forgiveness over them, which they did not have. That's why he says in verse 2, that I'll turn your blessings into curses. I've actually already done it. It's because they don't have the forgiveness that these priests are pronouncing over them because they've brought unacceptable sacrifices to God. And so God says they're showing contempt for his name, not only in their false worship of him, but in teaching his people to do the very same thing. James, the half-brother of Jesus, says in James chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Jesus says himself, Matthew 18, If anyone causes these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Such things must come. But woe to the man through whom they come. I don't mind telling you at all, in light of all this, as well as what we looked at this morning in our passage, as your pastor, this is terrifying to me. And it should be. It's because this means I can't only consider whether or not my worship of God is, is showing honor or contempt for His name. I also have to consider every moment how every false, contemptuous way of worship that I do may actually lead an entire church of people to falsely worship God as well. And it's because of that, the reality 
The reality of that is that the ministry of God's word, it's an amazing responsibility, but it's also an incredibly weighty one. I take that responsibility very seriously every time I I get up here to speak to you from God's word. Because I'm held responsible. I'm responsible for you. But, just in case you all were like, thank God I'm not a pastor. Hang on. Remember what Jesus' words were in Matthew 18? Did he say, if any pastor leads one of these little ones to stumble? No. He said, if anyone, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that means parents, teachers, mentors, friends, even older siblings, many times have you said to your kids, don't do that, your sister's watching you. She's looking to your example. All of us, in, in, in every and in any situation where someone is looking to you, looking to your leadership, seeing your example to know what right worship of God is like, what living for God is supposed to look like, you carry this very same responsibility yourselves. Apostle Paul, he could say, follow me as I follow Christ. Could you say that? Could you say that to the people who are following your example right now to to know what worshiping God should look like? What does your worship of God demonstrate to the people who are witnessing it? Is it true worship? Is it true worship that demonstrates that a life lived in pursuit of God is better than, is more worthy of my best than anything else this world has to offer? Or is it false worship? Is it a going through the motions worship? Is it offering the very least of what I have, the scraps of what I have to offer, demonstrating, yeah, you should try to honor God's name, but you know what, if you can't, If you don't want to, if it ends up taking too much away from the things you really love, you know what? God's cool with you showing contempt for his name. What does your worship of God demonstrate to the people who witness it? It is essential that we know the answer to that question, that we consider it at least, whatever the answer ends up being. If it's true worship, then praise God for that. Thank God for that. And listen, please, continue to demonstrate that. Continue to show that to people. Hey, hey, this is what worshiping God looks like. Do this. But if it's false worship, and you know it is, then we can finally admit it. We can finally admit it and stop pretending to honor God. Stop pretending when really what you know you're doing is showing contempt for Him. And it's essential that we do it, and, and we know we can do it because, again, this is why I said we keep coming back to this, because God started with his love for us. I have loved you. That's why he began there, because even if you realize and you come to see in your own heart, my worship of God is false. I'm not offering the best. We have a God who, yes, is holy and just, but he's also gracious, compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He loves to to welcome back those who have wandered from him. He loves to reignite fires that have grown cold in worship of him. He loves to water vines that have all but dried up. 
He will receive your true worship of him from your heart when you bring it to him. The moment you bring it to him, he will receive it. We said it already, but I need to repeat this because it's so important that we know as we close this morning. True worship of God, true worship that honors his name is not about the amount, the size, a certain amount of emotion attached in our acts of worship. It's almost entirely about the heart motivation, the heart intention behind those actions. It means God is not impressed that you're here in church this morning. He's pleased or displeased with why you came to church this morning. God is not moved by how much you put in the offering plate or how many teams you serve on here. He's pleased or displeased with why you do those things. And think about it. The Pharisees were the most religious people around in Jesus' day. They, they got the Mosaic law down to the little tiniest points, and yet Jesus hammered them on them again and again because, quoting Isaiah 29, he said to them, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You're going through the motions, but you're not truly worshiping me at all. Worship originates in the heart, which means if your heart is far from God, you can actually be doing the exact same actions as the person right beside you and still not truly worshiping him. That's one reason why King David, when he recognized how his false, distorted worship of God had led him to really just blow up his life and his kingdom, and as he surveyed the destruction and thought about the contempt that he had shown for God's name and his sin with Bathsheba, listen to what he says in his response to God. He prays this, Psalm 51. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a right and steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's asking God to restore his heart, to restore the way that he worships God, to bring true worship to him, to bring the very best of what he has to offer. And then what's the result of that reordered worship? The very next verses. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. When true worship originates from the heart, we truly honor God. And when others witness it, they are led to true worship themselves. This is only an act of God's help and his mercy to enable us to do this. So let's pray right now and ask God to help us.